she was energetic, she was very creative. She was someone who I think uh, reminded really me of myself really a lot at, at her age. She was looking to develop and find her, her voice. Plus she was uh, interested in documentaries, which my own background is in documentaries. I met Heather in high school. I met her when I moved to Montgomery County, Maryland. She was one of the first people that I actually met. Just met her in passing in the hallway. And then we were in a play together. And um, that's how we really became acquainted. Here's this tiny little thing that first go in and of course mom is there and the baby's been brought up for the first time. I stick my arms out to go pick her up and watch up. Careful, careful, you'll break her. I said, I didn't break the others. How am I going to break this one? So I picked her up and held her, I guess, for an hour or so before I gave her back to Mama. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, the horror movie podcast that is covering every horror movie franchise, a movie in an episode at a time. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, joined once again by my co-host, Jerry Smith. Jerry, how are we feeling tonight? I'm doing great. I, I re- revisited the Blair Witch Project last night for the uh, only fourth time in my life. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, same result. Yeah, same result. Still pants shitting scary. At Dude, times. No, honestly, like, honestly, like my wife was laughing the entire time because we set the projector downstairs mm-hmm. and I kept looking over my shoulder the whole time. She's like, what mm-hmm. is wrong with you? Like, what is up with you? You write about horror movies for a living. I was like, I don't know. Dude, I held my bladder all night because I didn't want to go downstairs and pee. Excellent. That's why you got to keep that spare Mountain Dew bottle by the bed every right. now and then. We actually did a screening of it two, three Octobers ago, or two Octobers ago when we first moved in to our house. We really wanted to do a screening in the woods, but just could not um, get it together. So we did like a backyard screening in a fairly wooded area. And we watch it outside with a bunch of friends projected. Um, and I remember like that night, my wife was like, we're in our bedroom. And she's like, I think I see something in the backyard. And there's no fucking way I'm going back there. <laughs> so just like time to lock all the doors. See, all right. Like, what's, what's interesting really quickly is watching it last night, you know, especially after that long three plus hour episode, which like, like I said in the episode, by the end of the episode, I realized that. I don't only love this movie, but I consider it probably one of the best movies ever. Mm-hmm. And I, I try, I'm going to try not to gush on this episode because we have, you know, a special guest. But man, last night just cemented that. Like, it just hits on every aspect. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So tonight we are actually joined for a little bit of a bonus episode here. Before we move on to Book of Shadows, we have a couple interviews lined up right now. And we're really excited um, basically to be speaking with Ben Rock, who is the man behind a lot of the mythology of the Blair Witch. And pretty much I would call him the hype man, pretty much the person who I think his work got a lot of people kind of into the theaters. Uh, he's the writer and director of the three. I wouldn't call myself that. Go on. I would <laughs> Well, well, I'm the host, so I'm calling you that. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, damn it, it's my show. All right, we'll edit that part out where I curse out the guests. <laughs> it's all, you can curse me out. It's it's really fun. Fair enough. So he is the writer director behind the uh, mini documentary, The Curse of the Blair Witch, as well as the Burkittsville Seven and Shadow of the Blair Witch. He's also responsible for the Shutter exclusive uh, podcast, The Video Palace, which is 
super fun. If you guys haven't right. listened to that, it is like an audio drama that is like really scary. Uh, it's for those of us that grew up in the VH generation. It's a lot of fun. Cannot recommend that enough for a, a binge listen. Jerry, uh, Jerry, I already know how you're doing, Jerry. Penn, how are we doing tonight? I'm doing great. Doing awesome. Chasing after a 16-month-old all day. It was a lot of fun. That's great. So he's walking now? Oh, yes. Yes, walking a lot. That's when it gets terrifying and not as much fun. Walking and then running. I don't know. Is it ever... Nothing Nothing will ever be more terrifying than clipping his fingernails when he was two months old. Nothing. I, I, I only drew blood once. My wife drew blood once and said, fuck this, I'm not doing this anymore. And uh, so it became my responsibility. I drew blood once and freaked out and almost took him to the hospital. And, uh, and uh, ever since then, I, I've just, it's like, it's like being a negative cutter. Measure twice, cut once. Like if you're not sure that you can make the clean cut on the fingernail, just don't do it. But now that he's 16 months old also, it's, you know, it's a much larger target than, a, you know, like a three-month-old. I remember when our daughter was like about 16 months old, we, my wife and I were celebrating our anniversary and my mom was watching Ada that afternoon. I remember we got a call. Uh, I don't want to worry you, but Ada has a carrot stuck up her nose right now. And I think you should come get her. And we had to take her to like the emergency room to extract a piece of carrot on our wedding anniversary. So that was super fun. My son, my son got an entire crayon up his nose. (laughs) like the entire thing yeah it's brutal it is all right so we could do a whole podcast on horror movie parenting and i think uh i kind of want to do that at some point but i good idea I digress. I think so i think if i could find the time i would do that so i you know ben we know your time is precious so we want to just jump right in if that oh not anymore i can go all night now anyway (laughs) (laughs) all right um well i need to get to work tomorrow morning and tell a bunch of eighth grade girls that's eighth grade boys are the fucking worst so that's pretty much fair they're you're not wrong by the way they oh my god if i ever write about (laughs) one thing it's that i was i was a substitute teacher for like five years and uh i i steered way clear of middle school oh god oh jeez the worst people alive (laughs) <laughs> you know if i say i agree i feel like it would get back to my school somehow and i would get fired so please don't yeah you should you should correct me i'm 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 way off base and i just don't see their inner light but also being a substitute teacher like you know you kind of see the worst in all the students yeah that is hell um so how did you first um uh, get together with eduardo uh, sanchez daniel myrick and greg kale like what brought you guys together well we all went to college together uh in orlando florida in the 90s so um there were at the time actually there's they're all still there uh there were at least three film programs in orlando because the the film industry was sort of pretending to move to orlando a little bit uh so you had universal studios florida getting you know they they just opened and uh, Disney MGM Studios, which I don't know if it's still Disney MGM. And uh, uh, I mean, there were some other, th- there had always been a small production base there. You know, there's a, actually a huge production base, you know, four miles, uh, four miles, four hours south in Miami Beach. But um, 
uh, you know, they were trying trying to hype it up. So uh, three film schools opened. Uh, Valencia Community College, which is now Valencia College, they they started a program that was all technical. Full Sail, which is still there and is still Full Sail and is, you know, uh, a, a very... Uh, uh, a, a lot of students come out of there. I worked on a project a few years ago and like two-thirds of the crew were Full Sail grads. So uh, It's the home base sale. for uh, NXT, the WWE's... Uh, developmental territory. They do a show there every week. Yep. Oh, I believe it. Yeah. You know, I mean like Darren Lynn Bousman came out of there and uh, there's uh Stephen C. Miller came out of there. Um, you know, like it's, it's, it's legit. I'm not, I'm not down on full sale. A lot of my, uh, a lot of people who I knew back in the day are now teaching there. And then, uh, the other program was, uh, at the time full sale was not a bachelor's program. Now it is. Uh, so, so the university of central Florida had a bachelor's degree program. So, uh, sorry, it's a very long answer to your question, but, um, I right out of, right out of high school, I was a terrible student. I went to Valencia community college and actually turned out to be a pretty good student when I was paying for it. And, um, and then I went, uh, I applied, got in and went through their film program, which is just a one year kind of certificate program. Uh, after I got my associate's degree, so I could transfer to, you know, a four-year college after that. But I, I kind of took a one-year, um, uh, a, a one-year cul-de-sac of, of the certificate program to kind of learn all the technical arts of film. So at Valencia, you learned grip, camera, sound, electric, production, art department, that kind of stuff. And uh, one of the students there who was a little bit older than all of us was Greg Hale. And I remember one day our teacher, Michael Corbett, said, like, hey, everybody, if you've made a film, let's, like, tomorrow, let's watch them. And so we all brought, like, VHS tapes, and I had this thing that I'd made when I was 19 called No Subtlety that was shot on VHS, and uh, I was very proud of it. And uh, we all had something like that. Not None of it was all that great. And then Greg put in a film that he had made on black and white Super 8 called Perpetual Motion, and it was like, holy shit, that's a real filmmaker. Like we're all, we're all, we're all pretending and this guy's for real. And Greg was, you know, I was 19 or 20. Greg was probably 25. He'd been in the army. Um, he, you know, he, he'd kind of lived a little bit of a life and then, and, and he also was part of the crew that had built Universal Studios, Florida, like in the, uh, art department kind of thing. So after Valencia, or like while I was at Valencia, I applied to two schools, CalArts, which I didn't get into, and uh, UCF, uh, which I did, which was convenient because that meant I didn't have to move to Valencia, California at the time. And, um, and I knew people at UCF, and UCF was a tiny program. There were like only 30 students accepted per year. And so uh, I, Greg and I both applied, and we both got in, and we were in the third year of that program. In the first year of that program were... Um, Ed, Ed and uh, Dan. And I had gotten to know Dan because uh, I was a makeup artist um, f- from back in high school even. But I, I, and I wanted to do special effects makeup, but there really weren't that many makeup artists kicking around the film school scene. And uh, Dan was making a film at UCF called Sarah's Morning that Ed uh, was DP on. And if you look it up on YouTube, I think you can probably find Sarah's morning. I, it, it would, I think it would, um, I think it would terrify Dan to know that people were watching it. It, it. But I remember like going to their set. At, you know, at the Valencia program, we had thirty people and big cameras and trucks and stuff, and we kind of got it in our heads that like this is how, the only way to make a movie. And then I went to work on this UCF project for Dan. 
uh, doing makeup for him. And it was like, you know, four people in a tiny light kit and a, and a camera, an Airy S camera, which, you know, I think is actually from World War II. And um, I was like, this isn't going to look like anything. How can this look good? You don't even have any giant trucks or 12K lights or whatever. And then when I saw the finished product, I was like, holy crap, you don't need all that much stuff. Um, but, uh, that was where I met Ed and Dan on, on that shoot. Um, Mike Manello was in the same class with them and I met him when I was at UCF. Uh, and he also went on, he was the guy who created Video Palace. So he brought me onto Video Palace and, um, but he was also the co-producer on the Blair Witch Project. And when you, when you talk about the hype man for the Blair Witch Project, I actually think that credit should go to Mike. Mike was the one who convinced everyone to set up the website that put the content that I had, I had helped to create onto the website. Mike was the one who came up with that. Mike was the one who'd had experience in marketing and, and uh, used a lot of guerrilla tactics then and full-time professionally for a living now does guerrilla tactics for giant, big, uh, you know, studio projects and stuff. So, so, so when did someone have the idea? Because I think one of the things about the Blair Witch Project is it gets credited as perhaps being the first movie to really take advantage of the internet in terms of marketing. When did the idea come up to say, like, we have this new tool at our disposal. How do we make the best use of it? Okay, so I wasn't physically, like, I wasn't working in the Haxon offices. But uh, they had an office. Uh, it, was, it was a house they were renting in downtown Orlando. And they had a contract making videos that would like go on the screens in Planet Hollywood and stuff. Um, and so they were able to support themselves, support their Blair Witch making habit uh, by editing those videos. And um, Mike was the one. He had been the marketing director of the Florida Film Festival and of the Enzion Theater, which fi- both of those things figure prominently into the Blair Witch story as well. Um, but Mike had been the one that convinced the Enzian to put up a website, I believe for the first time when he was a marketing director there and the same for the Florida film festival. So, um, Mike has kind of told me the story that what it's a longer answer to a short question, but, um, the, the pitch reel that we had made, this is kind of jumping a little bit forward in the story, but, uh, you can find all this stuff. The pitch reel that we had made that I had written, that was the first thing that I did on it. Um, John, that had gotten into the hands of John Pearson. So John uh, Pearson was uh, a very prominent indie producer and producer's rep in the 90s. He discovered Spike Lee and Michael Moore and Kevin Smith. And he, he's he's a humongous, towering figure in uh, indie cinema in the 90s. And he has shown on, right? Uh, yeah, Spike, Mike, Slackers, and Dykes. Yeah, he, he's awesome. He's I think he's a college professor now. Um, so... John Pearson had a show on IFC. I think it was, it was either IFC or Bravo called split screen. And they had run our, uh, you know, our, our kind of pitch reel on their thing. And they had a, a website with a chat board and, you know, it's like early days of the internet. And so many people after they saw this thing hopped on his chat board that it crashed his chat board and it kept doing it over and over again. And so he reached out, I think to Mike or to, I, I, to, to someone from the Haxon group and said, you guys need to set up your own chat board because you're crashing mine. Like, I, I don't want to host your, your content here. Um, you know, you, you, you got to do this. And I think that was sort of the last straw, but I believe Mike had been kind of pushing for some kind of internet presence up until then, you know, and like, I don't even know if I had an email account at that time. I probably did. If I did, it would have been like an AOL account. Um, 
you know, like we weren't all on the internet. <laughs> like it really was kind of a, you know, kind of a, a new technology that, you know, some people had embraced, but most people, you know, my father wasn't on the internet yet. Like a lot of people are like, what's the point, you know, and they, they'd learned, but they, they hadn't gotten there yet. So what was it like for you then when like you had said, like when message boards start to talk about this, when it gets a presence, what was it like to at least hear about this kind of reaction from either, you know, fans of the movie that's coming out to, you know, when you hear people are trying to quote unquote, solve the mystery of what happened to Heather, yeah. Josh and Mike, what was it like to kind of hear that secondhand or just discover well, that that was going on? Again, cause the internet wasn't like a big thing. Like if you told me that there was like, a huge incident on, uh, you know, TikTok or Snapchat, I'd be like, oh, that's neat, but I don't, I'm not on those platforms, so I wouldn't really know the gravity of that today. Um, so the fact that it was like a big deal on the internet, I get, you know, like I, I think I really only used the internet like for email at the time, you know, uh, Wikipedia didn't exist, you know, the internet movie database, like there wasn't much on the internet. Um, it's, it's hard to imagine, you know, amazon.com. I, I had bought some stuff on Amazon. Um, but, but there really wasn't that much. So to me, when I realized the power of it was more like when I heard that, like there, you know, cause we're all in Orlando at this point, um, that, uh, I think it was K rock, the LA radio station, uh, in like, had like spent like five or 10 minutes of morning drive time talking about this website that they found and was this stuff real? And I was like, Oh, like it was, it, it was kind of rippling back at us. But like, by the time the website was up, um, we were well on our way towards like, I, I, like I, I couldn't tell you the exact timeline of it. Um, Mike Manello could, but, um, I would say we were on the road to Sundance. Like we were already kind of a known thing floating around in the world, which means the movie was long in the rearview mirror. Like the website was not up when we were making the movie. Um, you know, and so my involvement, I would say starts in, uh, you know, like 96, uh, 1996 when I wrote the, uh, what you would call today the sizzle reel or the pitch tape when I wrote that and kind of did a bunch of research and created a bunch of stuff and, um, and I, and I, and I did that and then sort of ends around the time the film is finished being shot, which is, uh, you know, Halloween of 1997 was our last shoot day. And then we actually had to do some pickups the next night. So November 1st, 1997. And then it was kind of in Ed and Dan's hands. And there was, uh, I don't know if you've heard about this, but there was a phase two. So the original concept for the movie was that, uh, experts would be analyzing the footage that that was found in the woods, kind of in search of style, and um, and so there were a few shoots for phase two. Some of them made their way into Curse of the Blair Witch, like the mysterious occurrences uh, uh, thing, kind of the in, the nineteen seventies paranormal documentary looking piece uh, was was one of the things. And even though uh, they they shot it, they brought him back. There was a an, a private investigator named Buck Buchanan who, um, that was his real name. I found him. Uh, and you can tell how far I went into the yellow pages to find someone whose last name was B. Um, but he was a cool guy and they shot some stuff for phase two and then they ended up not using it, but they ended up bringing him back and interviewing him for curse of the Blair witch. Um, and anyway, go ahead. So phase two was post getting picked up by artisan and having a little bit more, 
no, no, no. Uh, phase phase two was always the plan. So phase one we shot in October, and then phase two was sort of like kind of catches catch can after that, and that was going to be the whole movie. Uh, 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 you know, honestly, uh, probably the biggest part of phase two that kind of made it out into the world was the Rustin Parr uh, jailhouse interview. Um, so that was a phase two thing, and and uh, so I wasn't I was around for a little bit of that stuff, but not much. Uh, because they really didn't have any money at all. Like it was basically being it was it, it was being done, you know, with the dregs of the tiny budget that we'd already had, and that budget was only like twenty two grand or twenty five grand to make to make the thing that really is the movie as it was released. Well, and, well speaking on that, uh, speaking on that real quick. I mean, the shape of the film, you know, eventually changed from I mean, what you're saying more of like the documentary in search of kind of angle to the what the found footage thing that we eventually received. Uh, having yeah. written a lot of that mythology, how involved were you in kind of helping decide what worked and what didn't? Did you have any hand in that? Uh, I had literally no hand in the editing. Uh, that was all Ed and Dan. I, I was there a lot. Um, in fact, like I, I shot a short film right before I moved to L.A. in uh, in 1998 called The Meeting. And they let me edit it at Hacks and Films. So I was literally like they were editing Blair Witch on the very, it was a media 100 on the exact same media 100 that I was editing this short on at night. Like I'd come in at 11 o'clock at night and edit for three hours and go home and wake up and do it again. Um, and, uh, you know, so I was around and, um, also, uh, when I said earlier that the NZN theater and the Florida film festival factor into this, I was, uh, a, a manager and a projectionist at the NZN theater back then. Um, and what that meant was, um, because it's, it was then and probably still is now kind of a very family run owned, owned and operated kind of a, kind of a arts place. They were actually cool with me doing a screening on Saturday morning of a, like in LA, I would murder to have something like this. I could go in Saturday morning, you know, our first screening wasn't until like two or three or whatever. I could have people come in at 10 in the morning and I could run a screening as long as I cleaned up afterwards, everything was cool. So the first cut of the movie, which was like two and a half hours long, uh, they brought, you know, a, a digibeta deck over to the Enzian and we set it up and we had an audience of people. Oh, wow. And, and, uh, and, you know, I gave feedback then. And I mean, like I gave feedback and a lot of other people gave feedback. Um, and actually it was at that first screening that they met, uh, Kevin Fox and Kevin Fox ended up coming on board to be an executive producer. And he, he was an L.A. based producer who was in Orlando actually making a film at the Valencia uh, film program at the time. But he had connections to, you know, people with money and agencies and lawyers and stuff like that. And uh, he was able to kind of connect them to a lot of places and people that they wouldn't have had connections to. And he saw the potential in the movie immediately and, and kind of, uh, you know, hitched his wagon to it. So what did you see in that like two and a half hour cut that worked and that you were going to like were able to take from when you put together the curse of the Blair Witch? Like what jumped out at the Rustin Parr stuff was in there? I take it. No, no, none of it was the two and a half hour cut. The, the two and a half hour cut literally was just the three, the three actors in the woods an hour more of it than what you've seen in the movie. And it was like. It, it's funny because after we shot the movie, I actually remember standing in the parking lot of the Enzian Theater and talking to Greg Hale about it and saying, I think what we shot in the woods can be the movie. Like, I think that there's a whole movie in that. And he's like, I don't know. I don't know. And I'm like, no, I really think, th- I think that there's, there's something there. 
And uh, and when I remember watching the two and a half hour one and being like, well, I guess I was wrong about that. <laughs> um, because it was a lot of Heather pointing her camera at dead, wet leaves while she walked around complaining about stuff or, you know, Josh getting getting into screaming matches with people or whatever. And and it was just it was over long. I mean, like, you know, it seems self-evident to me today um, that like if you're going to make a horror movie, I'm not saying you can't make a, hor- a long horror movie. There are some super long horror movies that I love, but I sort of feel like you get 90 minutes. The audience is going to give you 90 to 100 minutes. And if you're making The Shining, they'll give you some more. But most most horror movies, uh, no matter how awesome, tend to live in that zone. I don't know how long John Carpenter's The Thing is, but I bet it's not three hours long. You know, it's... Uh, and I've, I should know because I've seen that movie about a billion times, but I don't... I couldn't... I, 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 I would bet it's in the two-hour neighborhood... Um, maybe a little bit shorter, but two and a half hours is a long time to watch found footage. And, um, yeah, you know, I mean, it was, it wasn't a finished cut. It was a, Hey, let's see what's working and what's not working cut. And, uh, you know, they went and they shaved, you know, an hour out of it. And at that point it was pretty, pretty tight. There's sometimes online people will talk about how they want Ed to go in cause Ed's threatened to do this, to go in and make a longer cut of it. Cause you certainly could, um, you know, I, it's I'm of the opinion that the cut that's out there is the is the best cut, and uh, I I'm sure you could go into the raw footage of you know Citizen Kane or Star Wars and make a better movie than got the one that got released, but I sort of feel like to what end? Like just kind of like it's it it really it worked it worked for audiences. Uh, it's excellent. No reason to go in and you know with with uh different eyes as a different person 20 years later 20 more than 20 years later and 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 uh play with it again i i don't know that you get a movie that's so much better that it's it it commands a need to watch it but i've never spoken to ed about this and maybe he has uh uh designs that i don't know definitely ask him next week when we talk to him but it's funny though because this is a true director's cut. Like what you see in theaters is a director's cut. It's what they ended up putting in. So yeah. it's not like they were forced to take stuff out. Like, no, they, you know, from, you know, what I've read, like have really like really took a hatchet to it and, and cut it to the bone to the point where they had to make the credits longer um, in order to get like designated as a feature film because they had cut so much of it. It was under the running time of what would be quote unquote considered a feature. Well, I think that cutting it down to the bone was the right call with that because, um, yeah, because, I mean, uh, even cutting down to the bone, to me, it's so overwhelmingly a character piece. And I think the longer it is, the more as an audience, you want the thing that you want the thing as a horror audience that could not be satisfactory. Like if the Blair Witch showed up out of a beam of light and hovered in the, you know, in the house and you know, rode around on a broom, no matter how you showed the Blair Witch, it would have been, it would have sucked. There's no satisfying way to look at it. Um, and, and so I feel like the longer it gets, the more you're kind of making the promise that you're going to get that. And, and, uh, you know, some, some people, uh, at the time and, and, you know, even today, uh, find the movie frustrating because you, you really don't see anything. 
Um, but I mean, like th- there are always those movies like, you know, uh, Robert Wise's The Haunting is the one that I always kind of cite where, you know, they re- they remade it. Jan de Bont remade it in 1999, same year we came out and, uh, you know, showed everything. But the original Robert Wise, The Haunting, you don't really see anything and it's terrifying. Well, uh-huh. it, leaves it, it leaves it up to the imagination. And sure. rewatching The Blair Witch Project last night, like that was one of the many things I wrote down in notes is like, it works so well, and I, I wouldn't change a single thing about it. I wouldn't want it any longer. I think it's perfect the way it is, and and not showing the witch and leaving everything up to the imagination is what made it so terrifying to me. Yeah, I agree. I agree, and 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 I I I don't think that there's a visual a visual representation, and I'm I'm not gonna really criticize the Adam Wingard 2016 movie because I overwhelmingly liked it. But I feel like try, they felt like they needed to show a little something, something. And I feel like it actually didn't help. Like, I feel like I, di- I didn't feel like, oh, finally, we get to see what the Blair Witch looks like. It's not it's a different time. You know, there was a time where every Friday the 13th movie, I couldn't wait to see Jason Voorhees mask come off so I could see, you know, whatever, whatever continuity be damned makeup effect they'd slapped on Kane Hodder's face. Um but uh, I I don't really feel like we're in that moment right now. You know, like a movie like The Witch. Uh, I love The Witch. I saw it twice in the theater and I bought the Blu-ray and I don't really buy a lot of Blu-rays. And, you know, it's a movie where you see enough to feel satisfied, but you also, again, you don't like you don't get to see the face of the devil or something like that. And, and uh, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's it's a tough line to walk. Because also, you know, John Carpenter's The Thing is, you know, not just one of my favorite horror movies, but one of my favorite movies, period. And that movie shows you fucking everything all the time. To me, a character piece like The Blair Witch, what works about it is because I don't see anything, I get to imagine a lot more. And, you know, that drive home, coming home from the theater and walking into my place, you know, afterwards, your mind gets to go places and your mind gets to turn things over. And that to me is a lot scarier than anything that, you know, like here's a makeup effect. Like, yeah. Well, that. well what's great about it is, I mean, just in my opinion, the, the film's not about the Blair Witch. I mean, it's about Heather, Josh, you know, like it, it is very much a character piece, you know, right. and I think that's what you need to focus on. And I, I just, I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Can't agree more. What I do want to ask is, and we started the conversation before we hit record by talking a little bit about what scared us as kids. And in part, this movie works so well is because the story of Ellie Kedward and everything that follows in the mythology, it's so much like the stories that like we would tell each other around campfires growing up or like when we're tucked into bed when our grandparents are trying to get us to go to sleep and behave. Yeah, yeah. Um, what specific bits of like folklore and legend did you take growing up and try to like interpose that into the mythology you had come with when working with these guys on the movie? Well, I mean, uh, every ghost story that ever kind of crawled under my skin, um, like I, I, this is, this is goofy and I've never really spoken about this, but like when I went to high school, there was supposedly a guy who haunted, the theater that I was, you know, I was part of the drama club and, and there was a guy named Tommy who supposedly had hanged himself in the 1970s and his ghost was in the theater. And it was, and what kind of stuck with me was actually you ask 10 people, you'll get 10 totally different stories of Tommy, you know? And that was, 
you know, a very localized folklore of, you know, the Winter Park High School, you know, Thespian Troop 850, uh, uh, you know, and Durflinger Auditorium lore that matters nothing to anyone outside of that group. Um, you know, but then like, you know, like my, my fascination with that kind of stuff started, you know, honestly, even before that, like when I was a little kid, uh, you know, and I would read books about ghosts and hauntings and stuff like that. And I always, I always found it fascinating. And I think, you know, part of me, the, the part of me that used to believe in it is gone. I don't believe anything anymore, but, um, you know, uh, the, probably the biggest one was, the, uh, the bell witch from Adams, Tennessee, um, and that was the one where like when Greg Hale at his house said to me like, Hey, have you ever heard of the Blair witch? And I said, you mean the bell witch? Like I thought he got it wrong. <laughs> um, you know, the, the bell witch is like a famous, uh, haunting and it's a terrifying story when you read it. But again, you know, there are, you know, varying accounts and depending on, on who you're hearing the account from it, it, it changes the whole story around. And so one of the things that I very consciously did not just in, in when I was working on the Blair Witch stuff, but like in anything I do that kind of has an underlying mythology. And we did this big time in video palace is you don't give everyone the same story. There isn't can there isn't a canon to it. Um, there's kind of, we're, we're kind of circling around a very similar story, but, um, uh, that, that was why, again, not to jump forward, but like when, uh, I got my opportunity to direct kind of a piece of Blair Witch lore, uh, the biggest one being the Burkittsville 7 for Showtime. Um, I decided to take the most the most current piece of it prior to the Blair Witch Project movie disappearances, which was the Rustin Parr murders in the 1940s, and come up with a crank who said Rustin Parr didn't kill anybody. And, you know, to me, that's that that kind of hits at, at the heart of, of folklore, even modern folklore is it's like, okay, we're, we're all getting, uh, this Blair Witch, you know, endorphin rush out of, uh, out of saying that Rustin Parr killed these kids because an old woman ghost told him to do it, blah, blah, blah. What if he, you know, we've seen the, the footage of, of him being interviewed. He's clearly, you know, not all there. You know, what if this guy was manipulated by, uh, by a crazy person to say the things he said, and there's a more lo- there's a more rational explanation, but the rational explanation is that the oldest kid killed all the other kids. To me, that was even more terrifying. And um, but you know, like, I, and not that anyone has ever asked me to make a Blair Witch sequel, but like uh, we had talked before Blair Witch Two was made, uh, there were conversations about making basically an origin story of uh, of Blair Witch. So it'd be like it honestly would have been. Uh, I flatter I flatter any of us to say it would have been like the witch, but it would have been like a witch story of that period, or it would have been a supernatural story in that period. So obviously, it would not be a, it wouldn't be a found footage film. It would be, you know, kind of an original narrative story, kind of that you know feels stark and frozen in the winter, and you know, all to me, a lot of the things that signified the first movie, which were kind of isolation and kind of the the destruction and and um betrayal that happens you know among three people when they begin become increasingly desperate but it would have been over the course of Blair Township in in that time and uh my pitch at the time and I you know like again this movie's probably never going to get made but my pitch at the time was like we should show Ellie Kedward 
getting killed at the beginning and then never come back to her. Like it should have, we should make it clear that it wasn't Ellie Kedward, that Ellie Kedward had nothing to do with any of this. Like this is, this is something that's, that's, this is like the Bermuda triangle. It's just out there. Like you can put a name on it all you want. Interesting. Um, and, and that's kind of the route that Wingard and uh, Barrett went with overall. Like I always, when I watch the 2016 Blair, Witch, I think of that area I live in something called the Bridgewater Triangle, where there's like Bigfoot sightings and pterodactyls and haunted burial grounds, satanic areas. And it's like they treat it like that, where it's like not necessarily a witch, but this really just messed up patch of land where bad things happen. <laughs> That's cool. So I just I, I love that idea and not ever coming back to Ellie Kedward. Would you have like explored what it is at that point down the road or would you decide like, no, oh, yeah. we're still going to keep it mysterious? I think that you could do both. I think that um, uh, the 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 stupid version of it is is, uh, you know, kind of the pet cemetery route. Uh, I'm not saying pet cemetery is stupid. I love pet cemetery. But but I'm but I'm saying like you know, the, you know, ancient burial ground, you know, the indigenous, whatever. But it was even in one of the Blair Witch PC games at the time uh, that that the Native Americans in that area had a name for this thing. I forget what what they called it. Um, but uh, I like the idea that it's like a cursed place rather than, you know, ra- rather than this, than, than we vilify this witch. Um, and I think it, it, it makes for a more nuanced, uh, it makes for a, a more nuanced, uh, scary experience. It makes for more, uh, more suspense and more tension because it's, it's not like you can just vanquish this witch, you know, and, um, you know, it, it, any more than you could vanquish, you know, again, the Bermuda Triangle. I, I remember, when, because uh, I I was a consultant on Blair Witch Two, that was the extent of my involvement in Blair Witch Two. But I remember like the, I I was a, a consultant on everything to do with Blair Witch. So there was a series of young adult novels, and Dave Stern wrote some books, and then and then there were the video games, and then there was Blair Witch Two. And um, I remember Joe Berlinger really wanted to set it in Baltimore, and uh, he said, "Couldn't it follow them home?" And I'm like, "Could the Bermuda Triangle follow you home?" Like it's, it's not the way it works, but you know, and I I don't think it was like a giant rewrite in their script to say, oh, he's got some weird warehouse in, in Burkittsville or whatever. Well, it's funny. Um, I I made a note here when I rewatched Shadow of the Blair Witch, like I'm not a fan of Book of Shadows and it's going to be a tough episode to do. Uh, and I'm not going to (laughs) ask you. So, um, I'll answer any. I mean, I was around while they were making it, so I even uh, Neil Fredericks and I even went to their set. So, so I'm jumping ahead here a little bit in like my notes, but my question was like, when I remember Book of Shadows, I remember they treated like the Blair Witch Project like it was a work of fiction um, yeah. at that point. And when I'm watching Shadow of the Blair Witch, you still treat it very much like these are things that happened, and there's a real history here. Um, how much of a fine line was it to kind of like kind of thumb your nose a little bit at Artisan and say like, nope, this is the direction I'm going in for the piece I'm creating for it. And also like the direction that Berlinger decided to move in. I mean, there's there's no nose thumbing going on there at all. Um, originally, uh, I had pitched and the reason I went to the Blair Witch 2 set um, was because I had and I had fully written a different special 
for Shadow of the Blair Witch. And um, I feel like it can be said now, um, and I try to be very diplomatic about this stuff, and uh, every, I, I just want to, before I even get into anything about Book of Shadows, I just want to say, I think Joe Berlinger is a freaking master filmmaker, and I admire his work, and I love his documentaries, and I loved his new Ted Bundy movie. Like, I'm, I have nothing against Joe Berlinger. I understand the circumstance he was in, and every filmmaker, when, when, uh, when they're handed the opportunity that they want which is make a feature film, and, and the circumstance is uh, uh, crappy, uh, i.e., um, in his case, uh, it's January, this needs to be in theaters this upcoming October, and it's a sequel to a movie you didn't like because he did not like the first Blair Witch. Um, I think every filmmaker will say, sure thing. I mean, the, the feature film I directed, Alien Raiders, was a similar situation where it was like, uh, I, I was offered it actually by Dan Myrick, uh, uh, six weeks after the day I said, yes, we were on set shooting it. <laughs> the script needed drastic rewrites and the writers guild we all knew was about to go on strike. And I had a, I had a really excellent writer, uh, Dan's wife, actually, Julia, who I've known for years. I had her for half of development and then I had to kind of wing it on my own after that because the WJ was went on strike. I'm only telling you the story to say like, I get Joe Berlinger was offered a shit sandwich and he was, and he was like, you know, if I eat this shit sandwich real good, then maybe uh, next shit sandwich will have a little bit less shit in it. Um, I, I'm not, I don't know that that's what he said. I'm saying that is a common way that filmmakers would approach something like this. So, uh, so anyway, I'm not disparaging it. Um, so, but to answer your question about Shadow of the Blair Witch, um, I had written another special and I was trying to give Book of Shadows its own mythology. And I think that my approach was, uh, a little naive. I was very new to the, to the business side of the business having, I'd only lived in LA for not even a year at that point. And, um, you know, Burkittsville seven, I, I could, I could run wild with that because that's my own mythology and I'm not stepping on anyone's toes. But it never really occurred to me that I could really step on somebody's toes because the mythology I've tried to come up with for Book of Shadows, I wanted it to have its own mythology. And so I wanted to say it was, even as I say this now, I'm like, I totally get why there was a pushback. Uh, I wanted to say it was like a cursed production, like The Exorcist or Poltergeist or whatever, or that there were like weird anomalies coming up in the negative and like to create this whole crazy, I wanted it to have its own unique mythology that that didn't fly to the heart of Blair witchiness at all because as a movie it moved away from that and artisan had approved that concept and I actually went off and wrote a full script and it got approved and and we and the reason Neil and I went to the Blair Witch 2 set was to start we part of it was shooting interviews we shot interviews with almost all the leads from uh, Book of Shadows and Joe Berlinger. <laughs> uh, and so I'd given them kind of the bio like I did on Burkittsville 7, like I did on Video Palace um, uh, to memorize. And they all did their thing. And we shot interviews, including Nancy Schreiber, the DP. Like it was, it was like we were off to the races. And then um, when artisans saw their first cut of Book of Shadows, they hated it. Um and I remember I was at uh, Birds, which is a cafe in uh, like right right below the Hollywood sign, with an executive from Artisan, 
and she handed me a copy of Paradise Lost and Paradise Lost 2 on VHS and basically told me the basic concept of Shadow of the Blair Witch as they wanted me to make it now. And I said, what about the script I already wrote? And she's like, oh, no, we're not going to do that. Like, that was... <laughs> I feel like today, for the most... Like, if something like that were to happen, there'd be there'd be a meeting. There'd be, like, a phone call where it's like, this thing that you've been working your ass off on, yeah, unfortunately here's how the stars have aligned. But I think I was so new that they were like, yeah, we'll just make them do whatever we want. And uh, that's fine. That's cool. I mean, she was never mean or rude. I'm not, she wasn't a bad person, but it was um, really clear that like, Nope, this is the direction you need yeah. to go in. What they wanted was they wanted to pretend that the events of Blair Witch two were real and they were dramatizing them. And I said, so the idea is last year, a movie came out and then some crazy guy murdered a bunch of people. And uh, less than a year later, we're releasing an entertaining horror movie based on the real murders that happened between last year and this year. And they were like, yep. And I was, and so some of the things that I dug my heels in about was like, um, th- there's uh, sections in there where we have uh, family members in silhouette who are protesting, you know, trying to stop the movie from getting released and I'm like, that's what would happen. You know, if somebody murdered my sister last year and this year an entertaining, an entertaining movie came out, it's not like uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and the Manson killings happened 40, 50 years ago. It's, it's, it's like last year. <laughs> like, you know, uh, her clothes still smell like her and you're making a movie about somebody murdering her. Like, that's not cool. And uh, I think that there was a bit of cynicism in in that, but I tried to steer into, okay, well, first of all, I studied the Joe Berlinger documentaries and I'm like, how does he, it it was him and Bruce Sanofsky. Everyone always forgets Bruce Sanofsky co-directed the first like four or five movies that that Joe made. Um, And Bruce, Bruce passed away like 10 years ago. Unfortunately, he was kind of young. Um, but I, and I, I admit, actually I'd met both of them at the Florida film festival years earlier when they had brothers keeper. And then they came back with the first paradise lost movie. And I, I got to chat with them a little bit back then. I don't, I doubt they remembered. I, well, I, I know Joe didn't remember it at that point. Cause you know, to him, I think I was, you know, one of the original makers of the film that he didn't like, and he didn't really need to hear me out, but he's always, every, I haven't run across him that many times. He's always remembered me. He's always been very pleasant, so you know, like I'm not, I'm not here to crap on him. And again, I think, I think he's a, a masterful, amazing filmmaker. So, um, but yeah, so my Shadow of the Blair Witch, the the one that got made, um, or the one that got finished, because we actually started shooting the other one. That one um, in, uh, was me trying to wrap my head. And um, when we were making Video Palace, Manella would sometimes call me out for being like very literal about this stuff. When when I'm making something that is purporting to be a documentary. Like I'm really trying to be very consistent and say, okay, every piece of media actually needs to come from somewhere. I I can't just have a, a thing that conveniently shows up and doesn't make any sense why it's there. And, and I think that, you know, I've seen a lot of found footage movies and some do it better than others. Um, and you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call shadow of the Blair, Witch a found footage movie. I would call it a fake documentary. Like it's not supposed to be found footage. It's like, you know, we shot interviews, we shot this, we shot that. And, um, um, you know, it, uh, it turned out to be a, a pretty good experience, but it was, I was so exhausted from Burkittsville seven and we rolled literally right from Burkittsville seven into that, like no break. 
speaking speaking on the Birdsville Seven, I mean, you got a chance with that one to really step outside the scope of of the Blair Witch Project. What made you oh, choose sure. to focus? What made you choose to focus uh, on the Rustin Parr story? Well, uh, so I, I was brought in to pitch ideas for that, and uh, so you know, Curse of the Blair Witch had been a huge success on sci-fi, like a giant runaway hit for sci-fi channel. Um, as it was known then <laughs> before it was sci-fi with wise. Um, and so when the Blair Witch project was premiering on Showtime the following summer, uh, Showtime wanted an original special. And at that point, uh, all of the hacks and guys were working on heart of love. They'd all kind of moved on except for Greg, who was working on some TV stuff for them. And so none of them really wanted to dip their toe into the Blair Witch world again. And I was literally on a phone call with, I want to say, at least Greg and Ed and, was it Amaret Jones or John Hageman? Uh, one, of the, one of the execs over at, at uh, Artisan. And it, and it was all for the marketing department. And uh, they were like, why don't you talk to Ben? He did Curse of the Blair Witch. And, he, you know, he, he directs. Like, you know, uh, I, I, I feel like it was a huge favor to me. And also for them, I think they kind of just didn't want to worry about it. So um, they had me come in and what Showtime wanted and what Artisan wanted, and again, this is a marketing project, uh, was there, so when you see all the naked old man butts walking around in uh, Burkittsville 7 in the, in the insane asylum in the 1960s, just remember, this is a commercial. Um, but uh, uh, what they wanted was uh, yet another documentary in the vein of Curse of the Blair Witch, but they didn't want to talk about the first movie at all or as little as possible. Like they didn't want to go into any more thing about Heather, Mike and Josh because curse of the Blair, Witch had kind of beaten that story to death anyway. And they didn't want to talk at all about book of shadows, which was like shooting at that time. Um, so they were sort of like, what other story can we tell inside the Blair, Witch universe and to me, that was like, okay, well, it's a deep dive into some of the mythology. And so I went back to them and, uh, you know, you can only pull moves like this when, you, when you're hot. Um, uh, you know, because Blair Witch was like big, big, big money. And, and basically I had, the, um, I, I, I had the endorsement from all the original creators. And also I had been, you know, part of the original making of it and Curse of the Blair Witch. So I could walk in and pitch something this fucking weird. Um, I, I, I got the Frederick Wiseman documentary, Titicut Follies, which you couldn't buy at the time. You can get it directly from Frederick Wiseman now, like on DVD, uh, but you couldn't buy it back then. So there was a place or still is a place in LA called Eddie Brandt's Saturday matinee. They wouldn't rent it to you. Oh uh, yeah. It's a great place. Have you been there? Yeah. I love that place. So they wouldn't rent it to you, but Titicut Follies had played on K on a on PBS rather. So if you rented another movie, they would just let you take the VHS. And so I took that VHS and then copied it so I could show it to the artisan people. So Titicut Follies is a documentary that was made in, in a Massachusetts, Massachusetts uh, prison for the criminally insane. I want to say in 1962 It's yeah, it's right down the street from me. So you know uh, way more about it than I do. So it. It is the most unvarnished documentary. Uh, Frederick Wiseman, his signature move is basically kind of putting you in the place as opposed to having a series of interviews and trying to tell a story. It's more about kind of trying to create the feeling of what it's like to be there. And Titicut Follies was very uh, controversial in its time. In fact, it was made in 1962 or 61. 
and it it didn't air on PBS. It was made for PBS. It didn't air on PBS until like 1992 or 1991. So it took like 30 years. Um, but it was beloved by you know document documentary lovers because of its sheer ballsiness of just walking around this mental institution where these naked old creepy men were being herded around like cattle and kind of abused. And so I brought that into them and said, I want Kyle Brody to have ended up in a thing like this. And there happens to be a documentary filmmaker there who will sort of be our Frederick Wiseman. And then I showed them, I believe it was the Errol Morris documentary, Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. And I was basically like, I'm going to juxtapose these two styles. So we're going to have modern day interviews, reenactments. And then when we get to this you know, when we get to this footage of old Kyle Brody, who is going to be this horrifying, uh, scary, schizophrenic man being pushed around and treated weird and also naked, um, you know, like it's, it's going to be like raw and blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, I don't know how I pitched it, how I got away with it, but they were like, okay. And the budget was more than I'd ever had for anything in my life. I think the budget was $350,000 to make that. So it's like more than 10 times what the Blair Witch Project cost. Um, and you know, I wasn't in the director's guild or the writer's guild. Um, I do believe we were all sag with the actors Um, and, uh, you know, we shot it pretty, pretty quickly and we actually shot it in a former mental institution, Camarillo state. Um, and while we were shooting there on the other side of the campus, Pearl Harbor, Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor was using the same campus for something else. All I know is I saw a lot of big trucks. Um, I, they're probably shooting some hospital stuff there, but you walked in there and it actually looked a lot like Titicut Follies. Um, it was, it was a terrifying place. I think now they've turned, they've, you know, torn it down and turned it into a college or something. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know if I'm answering your question at all, but that, that was sort of the, the genesis of Burkittsville seven. And, you know, to this day, one of my favorite things of my own that I've ever gotten to make, and also by far the strangest thing I've ever been able to successfully pitch to anybody. Like, you you don't go into a room and bring up an... Obs- it's not the most obscure documentary, but in in Hollywood, bringing up anything that's, like, over five years old, you might as well be saying, well, you know, D.W. Griffith, blah, blah, blah. Like, like, like they get lost very quickly. And to bring up a documentary that, like, you would see it if you were taking a documentary class in film school, but but it's not like it makes the rounds out here. And uh, and at the time, I was a little offended, but now I'm actually like, ah, oh, I really got through to those executives because they made Joe Berlinger pay homage to Titicut Follies in the opening scenes of Book of Shadows when uh, when the Jeff Donovan character is in the mental institution and they force feed him through the nose. Like, that's one of the big, terrifying, horrible scenes in Titicut Follies. And we sort of threw away an homage to that a little bit by having somebody being fed through the nose, but not grotesquely. And Joe Berlinger, like, did the Marilyn Manson music video version of the actual scene where where the guy's got the cigarette with the ash hanging over the goop that he's pouring into the funnel that's going into his nose. And... uh, it, it it was uh, and the and I know they I know that they did that because they told me they did that. We were working on Shadow of the Blair Witch, and this executive said like, "Hey, you know, like we're doing reshoots, and we got Joe Berlinger to do this Titicut Follies thing." And I'm like, 
at the time I was like, oh, fuck you. you, you how dare you steal the thing I stole? <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember, too, like that's the minute. Cause I think the first three minutes and 20 seconds of Book of Shadows are pretty interesting. And then the use of the Marilyn Manson music kicks in. And it's kind of like the... It's kind of like the Hello Fellow Kids, Steve Buscemi, uh, Mem come to life in film form for me for the rest of the movie is like where it loses me. Um, <laughs> but what I love about book, what I love about the Perkinsville Seven is this this exploration of like really degenerative mental health. And one of the things that it's not addressed in there, and it's like really like this person, Kyle Brody, he's either they. The uh, character of Chris, who's like hammering this point home that he thinks that it's Kyle that is the one that murdered him, uh, murdered all these kids. It's like he never factors in that maybe seeing seven kids, you know, butchered in front of you by a crazy person might drive somebody <laughs> to like what we would call post-traumatic stress disorder. He's like, yeah, no, yeah. it's just this guy's pure evil. Yeah, well, I, I, I was trying to create a character with a hardcore agenda, <laughs> like, you, you know. know. And, and, and uh, uh, at, at the time, time then, and maybe, maybe again, again less so now, I've always been like a, a, a fan of a good conspiracy theory without, without really subscribing to any of them, or certainly not, not in a long time. And I think conspiracy theories have gotten less entertaining because they make people go into pizza restaurants with guns now for whatever reason. But, um, you know, I, I always think it's interesting when someone's kind of smart. Not as smart as they think they are, and, and they, they concoct some bullshit idea about how the world is organized and then won't let it go. I mean, actually, a really good modern-day version of that is the History Channel show Ancient Aliens, which I can't get enough of. I can't watch that show enough. I will watch every episode that they ever make of that show. Yeah, and it's my life, yeah. It's it's like it's like it's like they built a monument to fuzzy thinking, like to like. Uh, we're going to go and be academically, academically stupid. stupid. And we're going to we're going to make we're going to trip, trip over every logical fallacy we can on the way to our preordained conclusion. And that's the kind of character that Chris Carrasco is in um in in Birkinsville Seven. And I'll, and you know like his Kyle Brody's sister's like just get out of my life, you crazy person. Like let my dead brother be dead and, and stop saying he was a murderer. You know and. And, and I went out of my way and I did a lot of research to, to try and make the Kyle Brody character obviously schizophrenic. So, like, you're not going to get anything out of him, really. But are schizophrenics murderers? Yeah, probably some of them. I don't know. Yeah, and I deal with a lot of – I've actually dealt with a fair number of schizophrenics in one of my jobs. And, like, for the most part, they're fairly harmless yeah. Um, but it's just, you know, that's obviously what we see there with Kyle Brody is just taking like, you know, obviously not getting any sort of proper treatment is going to drive a person to that. What of I found so fascinating about Chris is like, he has no connection to any of this. Like, if I remember correct, he's just this like balding middle-aged dude in Ohio that somehow yeah, yeah. has latched onto this thing and he just won't leave it alone. And it's just, he makes all these weird connections. I mean, you can like almost see like the tinfoil hat like getting put on his head midway through the film it's a really fascinating character he's he's like a serial killer enthusiast and there's tons of those people as well who you know like will sit around and you know like i didn't know about these people at the time but like the people who who like get together and go to all the actual murder locations where the zodiac killer killed people and uh, and they do that today and it's like 
there's other there's better ways to make friends than than to gather around the Zodiac Killer. But I mean, like, I'm not I'm not disparaging anyone's weird ass hobby. I, I have my own weird ass hobbies, but uh, but but there's a certain morbidity to it, and there's a certain amount of like. Uh, in in the case of Chris Carrasco, there's like a certain amount of detachment from the reality. Like, okay, if we're saying all these people really died, then you're a sick fuck for getting excited about trying. Like, you're not solving a crime. You're just trying to. You're 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 just trading trading cards about the murders. Like, it's just not that you know. It's it's a morbid fascination, but it's a real fascination, and you know that I you know I, I very intentionally kind of filled him with that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's interjecting yourself where you're not really needed for some minor bit of notoriety. So I know we're working backwards here. Um, you know, we haven't even spoken about Curse of the Blair Witch, but I was kind of wondering when did it, when was it decided that like they were going to use this kind of like mini documentary as a piece of marketing? When did you get involved in saying this is what we're going to create ahead of the movie coming out? Well, uh, again, this is probably a question from Mike Manello. Uh, Ed would, I, when you talk to Ed, I bet Ed knows this too. Um, but Mike was, you know, Mike in the making of Curse of the Blair Witch, I, you know, Mike was probably the single most involved person. So, um, uh, I, I don't know when it was decided. Uh, here's what I know. Cause at that point I, I moved to LA in January of 1999 and then literally it got, bought at Sundance the, the day, uh, the day before I arrived in LA. Um, like, like we got to LA and it was in the papers that day that it had been sold at Sundance. Um, and so they were all still in Orlando doing their Orlando thing and promoting the film and going to Cannes and being, you know, uh, big time filmmakers as well they should have. And uh, I was in L.A. answering telephones at a corporate headhunting company, and that's actually where I met a guy named Chris Carrasco that I named that character after. Um, and uh, and I, named it, I named it after him uh, because he was the one in that office who predicted Blair, which was going to be a big hit. Um, anyway, uh, but um, so I wasn't in Orlando when a lot of these decisions were made. But I think that what happened was, and again, Ed or, and or Mike could tell you more clearly, they had those phase two assets like the Rustin Parr uh, prison stuff and uh, the Luke and Johnson kind of in search of looking stuff, mystic occurrences or mystical occurrences. They had, they had a few of those things. And I think that they kind of went like, it wouldn't cost very much to make this. And they reached out to me because uh, I think they were going to Cannes and Ed and Dan didn't have the bandwidth to write it. And because I had written a lot of the mythology, they asked me if I would do it. Um, and I was I was like, get paid and I get to stop answering phones at this freaking corporate headhunting company. You you got it. So, you know, I went home and on, uh, you know, my uh, then girlfriend, now wife's uh, like PC from college. Uh, wrote up, I, like nobody ever taught me to do this. And I don't know that it's like a real technique that anyone besides me ever does, uh, in the way that I do it. But we wanted to create kind of background for the actors to audition and also to, to, you know, for the, uh, for the actual interviews to basically be interviewed. So they wanted basically a bio that was like two or three pages long, or I don't know if they wanted it or if I pitched that idea. I, I honestly don't remember the genesis of how this came about. 
Uh, I will say that, again, this is a technique I used on Video Palace. I used it on all the Blair Witch specials. I used it on the Hellboy special I did. It's it's a way to make a very credible-sounding interview um, with, with the right actor, of course. But um, anyway, so, uh, you know, I came up with the characters. Uh, I don't know how many of them they specifically wanted. Like, I know Mike's brother was one that they were like, this character is going to be in here. Um, and I wrote all these bios that were then kind of that I emailed off. Uh, it was 1999. So for all I know, maybe I faxed them, but I, I, I think I emailed them. Um, and, uh, and then I also wrote like all the VO and the, you know, kind of structure. Like I know how this kind of a show, like a sightings kind of a show is structured. And I just kind of built it around like what I thought it would look like on, on paper at the time. And, uh, you know, sort of a best guess. And uh, the, the beauty of doing the interviews the way that we did was it enabled Mike, who I also think, in addition to producing it, also did all the physical editing of it. Uh, he could cut the interviews so they looked like interviews when interviews are edited. You know, crazy enough, I don't think people put enough thought into that. But it's like, if I script out everything that I want you to say and you say it all exactly the way I want you to say it, even if I am a genius and I write dialogue that sounds just the way an interview would sound, it's not when you cut it together, it's going to feel like a scripted thing that you cut together as opposed to um, the act of cutting up an interview, the way that you frankenbite an interview, which is what everyone calls it, uh, that is going to end with something that as an audience member, uh, you're kind of unconsciously going to accept it as real because it feels cut up in a certain way because it has to be. And, uh, and so, uh, we, we created all that and I built on the mythology, like, you know, the mythology front, if you find the original pitch tape that was on, uh, John Pearson's show split screen, that, that was the mythology walking into the movie, into making the, the first movie. And a lot of it had to be expanded upon for curse. And I feel like that was where I got to do the stuff that I was talking about earlier, where it's like, I'm going to give, if three people talk about the same thing, I'm going to give them all subtly different stories to tell mythology by way of the kids game telephone correct exactly um and it's conscious like sometimes people on facebook or whatever will ask will will kind of try and get me to say well what's canon and i'm like it's folklore so there really isn't canon it's not like the star wars universe where we know where boba fett came from or whatever like it's it's a little, it's a little plastic. It moves around depending on who's telling it because you have to go, okay, well, even if we go, Burkittsville is a teeny tiny place, but the stories of the Blair Witch aren't all centered there. And there isn't like, even though there's a book called the Blair Witch cult that kind of figures into this, there aren't, there's one existing copy of it. Nobody's read it. Like, and whoever wrote that was like one of those old West writers, um, uh, you know, like that dude in Unforgiven, who's like a sensationalist. I mean, frankly, that's what happened with the Bell Witch. Uh, a lot of the story of the Bell Witch, as we know it today, was kind of codified by somebody who wrote a book about it in the 1800s. But they're writing a big sensational, weird book because they want to sell books and they're making everything up. Um, and and that's how these stories kind of get promulgated through culture. And uh, and so I wanted to I wanted to feel like the residue of, of a story that has been telephone gamed around a lot. 
Well, that, um, that's also that's also what is so brilliant about not just the Blair Witch Project, but the the fact that I mean, it came out in 1999, and it it wasn't just a film. I mean, you know, the mythology was so huge that I mean, like you said, it's not just particularly the Blair Witch. I mean, we had the movie, we had your mini docs, you know, the books, the yeah. video games. I mean, Joshua Josh's mix on CD. Like, I yeah. I can't think of a single film that gave its viewers and fans such a massive amount of information i mean this is like the mcu years before that stuff you know like this is i i think that that's part of the effect and the lasting impact of the blair witch project is that you guys all together gave us as audience members and fans like so much to latch on to well, and I, and I think that to a certain degree, some of that's making up for the fact that uh, you don't see a witch in the movie. <laughs> we got to give you something. Um, no, but I, I think that, you know, um, it's, it's, it's something that uh, I none of us went to school to learn how to do this or whatever. But I think we all naturally were attracted to the idea of kind of building a, a universe around around an idea. And like I said earlier, Mike Manello basically has been, uh, you know, uh, very quietly, uh, but very successfully doing uh, ad campaigns that are sort of masquerading as, uh, I, I wouldn't say masquerading, they're ad campaigns that are deeper mythology. Like, for instance, he did a campaign for the man in the high castle that was called, uh, oh, it was uh, Resistance Radio, and it came out like two or three years ago. And so it was set at the same time as The Man in the High Castle, and they had DJs kind of doing, uh, uh, kind of sending out a, a pirate signal that was supposed to be from that world. And then they brought in uh, current musicians and had them record sound, uh, songs that sounded like they were from the 60s. And it was a brilliant idea. And, um, and it, it, you know, got in the newspapers and it, 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 it did a lot of stuff like that. He did a thing for the Purge TV series at Comic-Con a few years ago where they set up like a party city, but it was Purge City. And it was like, you could go to a party city like place and, and get Purge items. Uh, Mike, Mike's brain goes in that direction almost automatically, which again, not to keep, uh, talk, bringing up Video Palace, but it was one of the things that he and I loved about doing Video Palace was that we we got to kind of go in and make up a new mythology for a, a brand new thing that, you know, that, you know, again, we could sort of tailor it however we wanted to at that time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Excellent. I have one more question um, over right now for right now on Curse of the Blair Witch. If I remember correctly, you actually use a lot of the actual family members of like Josh, Mike and Heather to take part in the documentary uh only to my recollection it was mike's brother okay. i don't think i don't think any of the other people were like oh, it was josh's guess. girlfriend mm -hmm. and heather's parents it's, been it's a like grandfather i think uh um, yeah that's not that's it's that's definitely not heather's real grandfather okay. and it was mike's real brother oh how um, weird was it for mike's brother to talk about his brother like he was dead I, I, I was not there when they shot any of it, okay. so I couldn't tell you. I, okay. I can answer all of your Burkittsville questions because I was there for that whole shoot, obviously, because <laughs> okay. I directed it. But when they made Curse of the Blair Witch, I was literally in L.A. I think as soon as I turned in my script, I went back to work answering phones at that corporate because, mm -hmm. you know, got to feed the monkey. Right. 
So what was what was the first time you know with Curse of the Blair, which you had something here that really added to the overall story, uh, or to for fans going into the Blair Witch blind, aside from like what they had seen online and what they had seen on uh, from the Sci-Fi Network? Like, what was your first time you know? Like, whoa! I think we created something really cool here. Um, I mean, when I saw the cut of it, I, I, I. I just bought it. Like, I feel like, cause I didn't direct uh, curse. Um, Ed and Dan directed it. But when I saw, I mean, I was seeing footage of it anyway. Cause uh, like while they were editing it, I would, uh, you know, I would, I would have to write stuff to kind of bridge two things together or whatever. And I even happened to be in Orlando. And so some of the footage that was supposed to be the excavation of the house, what uh, it was not footage. It was like a bunch of stills. I think uh, I either took some of those stills or I was, it was like, three or four of us went to a place and set that up and art directed it and took a bunch of stills on like a disposable camera that we bought at, you know, at CVS or whatever. Um, but, uh, so I, I was seeing bits and, you know, dribs and drabs of it. And I feel like as soon as I saw the performances, um, I was like, okay, I buy this. I, I buy it all the way. Like I, I have no problem believing that, that these are all real people and that what they're talking about is real. And I think in a, in a weird way, a few years later, uh, Greg brought me back to Orlando to work on an ill-fated reboot of In Search Of that he was an executive producer on. Um, and Alan Landsberg, the original creator of In Search Of, was part of this uh, project. So I got to meet and see him. But it was sort of like an education in like, oh, that's how you... That's how you uh, that's how you tell a load of bullshit and get people to believe it. <laughs> like it's not, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it takes a discipline and a, and a point of view and it takes, it takes a good deal of thought, but it's actually not that hard. If that makes sense. Like, you know, what, what is that kind of documentary? I mean, if you, if you talk about a show like ancient aliens today, obviously ancient aliens, is not a cheap show because there's lots of outrageously expensive visual effects. But if you take that out, that out of the equation, um, that's, that's a reenactment. That's a style of reenactment that ancient aliens does. So it's interviews, which are not a big deal to do, right? You know, it's a crew of like probably no more than five people conducting interview. You can do it with two, uh, I've certainly done it. I've done real documentaries, you know, where it was like me and a sound person or me, a camera person and a sound person. Um, so you're going to build it mostly on that. And then artifacts, which is just like scanned photographs or flat art of some kind. So in the case of this, it's like, oh, we have to make it look like a bunch of college students excavating under a house. Well, we're about that age right now. So let's go find something that looks like a house and set up how we think it would look excavated and take some pictures and it'll look as good as anything else. I mean, you can get very involved with that stuff, but, but a lot of times the real artifacts were done in a slapdash kind of manner because they weren't being made as artifacts for a documentary, right? Um, you know, if you're looking at, you know, a Freedom of Information Act release or something like that, it's like, it's a document with a bunch of stuff redacted. Uh, are, are people going to go crazy and freeze frame it and zoom in? Yeah, they might. But, you know, also you don't have to show it them enough to give them enough to work off of. Um, you know, old woodcuts or whatever. There was a, a guy who was, you know, part of our, our uh, crew named Christian Guevara, who created some of the, you know, the older looking artwork, but like, that's, that's all easy to create. You kind of just have to, 
say like, okay, these are the, these are the piece, these are the building blocks. We're going to make this, you know, this lie out of this, this, um, it's not, it's, it's an entertainment. It's not a hoax. We're not trying to convince anyone that a fake thing is a real thing, but if we were trying to convince them, how would we go about doing it? It's, you know, and, and you kind of try and get as close to reality as possible. And I think that audiences like to play that game. They like to, the less you ask them to suspend their disbelief, the more they're willing to go along with something. I mean, obviously, if you're watching The Fast and the Furious, you've suspended your disbelief because, you know, Vin Diesel and, uh, you know, uh, The Rock aren't really, you know, chasing each other in cars. But um, but if you're watching something like that or, you know, again, to go to Video Palace, it's like I don't think anyone listening to Video Palace believed it was real. Um, but we tried to make it sound like a real podcast, like a serial kind of podcast where somebody's, somebody's, you know, we, we broke it apart the same way we did with Curse of the Blair Witch and said, what are the pieces of that kind of storytelling and how do you go about creating them? How would you go about inventing them as opposed to discovering them? So you have all these little pieces and I think you laid them out pretty well right there that a lot of people could do at that point. Like almost anyone could do those individual pieces and shape something together in some fashion that's entertaining at the very least. Where do you think the last bit of magic comes from that allows your audience to take that for at least an hour, I'm going to suspend my disbelief at this point and pretend it's real or get sucked in by it? Like, what's that bit of magic that you think that lets people take that leap with a creator at that point? I mean, I it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I think that like the techniques themselves, I feel like I would be happy to share them with anyone because they're not, they're not, uh, you know, sorcery anyway. And I've described it many times. Um, I think that, uh, firstly creating a compelling mystery is the hard part. Like, like, uh, that's, that's the essence of the writing of it. Like, how do we, how do we create the compelling mystery and the compelling mystery at the center of Blair Witch, uh, which existed before I got involved, was these three filmmakers went off to make a documentary about this anomaly, this this piece of folklore, and then they disappeared, and then their footage turned up. Like, that is a delicious mystery. Cause, because you assume that in the footage, uh, there might be the solution to what happened to these people. And when Greg Hale pitched me that idea in his living room and didn't tell me that it was fake, I believed it. Um, I, I think that it's just believable enough. Like I can believe that people could disappear while making a documentary. I believe their footage could turn up. Uh, if that documentary was about an old, you know, piece of scary folklore, then that footage might be scary too. I don't know. Like none of that sounds like insane to me, uh, or improbable, but then how you explore that and how you, how you build around that nut of an idea. That's, um, uh, uh, I mean, that's just understanding, I think, the structure and the form of how those kinds of stories are told. And uh, I also think that part of it, is, and part of it that filmmakers don't like to do is taking your hands off the wheel of controlling every second of everything that's going to be in there. So if you were to take my advice, for instance, and say, I'm going to make a fake documentary and I'm going to... Uh, uh, I'm going to write out these bios and then the actors are going to come in and I'm going to interview them. And 
I'm going to construct the interviews out. And you can always say, you can, when you're doing those interviews, you can say, well, actually he would, you know, like, this is more important. Make sure that you hit this point, do it all the time. But they're putting it in their own words. So it sounds like them, not like you as a writer. And, and, and I think that a lot of people want to have the authorial voice of writing all the dialogues. Uh, a, A friend of mine, uh, gave me a script to read recently for I, what I thought was a pretty cool idea for a found footage movie, but all the dialogue was very written and snappy. It, like this person spent a lot of time really drilling down and writing some snappy ass dialogue. And one of my biggest reactions was like, throw all your snappy dialogue away. It's, it, it gives it away that this is not found footage. It doesn't feel natural because that's not how people talk in their day-to-day lives. I mean, you know, this is why Aaron Sorkin doesn't write found footage horror movies, <laughs> you know, and, and and it's not to say Aaron Sorkin isn't a great writer. He's one of our best writers, but he writes in a stylized way, and we kind of accept screenwriting. Screenwriting is a stylized writing medium, and what Blair Witch was attempting to be, and what I think the best found footage movies do, is they try and work against it. What Ed and Dan and Greg kind of came up with for Blair Witch, uh, which no one else really does, but to me is the essence of what made it work, is that it is a real documentary uh, in that these three actors did not know what they were about to find every day. They didn't know what they were walking into. And so you're seeing their real natural reactions to things, and they know it's a horror movie, so they're supposed to be getting creeped out more by it. And when we're fucking with them in the middle of the night, which we really were, like we'd sneak out to their campsite and fuck with them in the middle of the night all the time. Every night we, we did, we had, there was a whole plant and Ed and Dan and Greg and sometimes me had architected whatever, whatever the nature of that plan was. Um, when we went to do that, they were filming what they were seeing. Now they knew that they should try to avoid seeing us, but if they'd caught us on camera, obviously they just would have got around it. Um, but um, but but it is a real documentary. So Ed and Dan had written a very complex uh, uh, scriptment that was like 40 pages long. And if you were to read the scriptment and watch the movie, you'd be like, oh, yeah, that's pretty close. You know, it's reasonably close. But they didn't go in there and script any lines of dialogue. The, that dialogue is all Heather, Mike and Josh uh, improvising. And it, it, it's such a, a pure form of scene work. But I think a lot of filmmakers don't want to trust it because it means you're going to have to burn a lot more, uh, not film anymore, but you're going to have to burn a lot more footage to get to the good stuff. And it's going to be a pain in the ass to edit it, of course. But, uh, and you're not going to be able to say like, oh, that great line of dialogue that I wrote, blah, 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 because you didn't write it. Mm-hmm. I think that's where a lot of found footage films go wrong is that you can tell 100% of it is just acting, whereas films yeah. like The Blair Witch Project, it feels very natural. Or more recently, uh, the WNUF Halloween special. Uh, both, I, I don't know if you guys have seen that, but I mean, it's, I, I basic, it's basically this rumored long lost Halloween special that was on a news report. And it comes with like uh fake commercials that just feel real it feels like somebody dubbed the tape over and over again like the blair witch project and the wnuf halloween special i think are two examples of 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 it just done completely right to where you get so lost in what you're watching that for a little bit you forget that you're watching a fictional film and I, i that's where found footage i think goes wrong so much 
is like, you know, I appreciate films like Cloverfield and that kind of stuff, but there isn't a single moment in that film that I get lost in it and like, oh my God, you know what I mean? Like you, what you guys created with the Blair Witch Project, I mean, it, it it's so easy to kind of like experience it and kind of live vicariously through this journey. But I think that that, that is the, the hardest part, I think, uh, as a creator is taking your hands off the wheel and saying like, okay, like I'm creating... I, I, it, it's no less, it's no less directing to do what Ed and Dan did, um, v- versus, you know, being James Cameron and, and having absolute control over every element. What Ed and Dan did was they created an environment and they created an experiment in which a certain drama would unfold and the drama that they designed unfolded the way they designed it to unfold, um, more or less. And, you know, there were wrinkles and there were um, there are nuances that you couldn't have written that came out uh, organically from the from the actors and from the locations that they found. And and so you end up with a level of verisimil- verisimilitude that's really hard to achieve, in my opinion, when you're doing a fiction film. Now, I, I mean, like I direct theater and I direct you know, regular old fiction stuff and I love doing it. And it's kind of what I aspire to do when I grow up, whenever the fuck that is. But, um, but I also see the value, uh, greatly in knowing how to, how to make something feel that real. And I think like, to me, there's no better example than, um, uh, the American movie quarantine, which was a remake of, uh, I want to say it was an Argentinian movie. It was South rec. Correct. I think it was from Argentina, but I could be wrong. I know it's from South America. And Wreck feels, it's the same exact story. It's not shot for shot the same, but it's very similar. Um, Wreck feels out of control. Wreck feels like you're you're just there with these this news crew while this crazy shit is happening. And Quarantine feels, I love Quarantine. I saw it in the theater. I, I think it's actually a really good film, but it feels production designed. It feels lit. It feels it feels contained and controlled like a regular movie, and um, you know it's not to slag it. I think it's I think it's good work, but it's uh, it, it it's harder to it's harder for me to just go in and and, and fully accept it. There are movies like uh, I liked The Last Exorcism a bit, but there are two things that that pulled me out of it. One of them was their use of sound specifically music, but also like having characters walk across the street, but we can still hear them. Cause it's like, no, no dangus, the microphones with the camera. So, so why is the audio following them except for the filmmakers who wanted to have that ability? And I also thought that the ending felt very uh, convenient. Um, it, it, it felt, it felt like a scripted satisfying ending. And I think that, you know, like paranormal activity in my opinion, works better as a found footage movie because it doesn't feel like it's dotting all its I's and crossing all its T's. So I'm going to excuse the music in The Last Exorcism with this theory that only exists in my head because it's one of my favorite movies, period. I love that movie. I think Patrick Fabian should have the career that Patrick Wilson has. Dude's a charisma machine. Um, I see that movie as a recruitment video for the cult behind everything like they show that afterwards is like here's how we lure people in to come join our 
you know, crazy <laughs> satanic death cult. Hence, it's That's more funny. seen like a Lake Mungo type of movie where it's like an actual finished documentary with stuff put into it. So... That's my story. I'm sticking to it. I have nothing to actually back that up. Um, so it's totally fair. I mean, I I really like that movie. I'm not. I'm not. Again, I'm not like slagging it. It's just I I. It's my taste that it's like if I'm supposed to believe this is found footage, then there would be no music on it. Then I should not really feel. Uh, editing should be done for content and not for things like pacing. Um, like it's not. You should, and, and I mean, the thing is as a filmmaker, it takes away so many of your toys because like when I'm making a regular narrative style film, I want to use music. I want to use great cinematography. I want to use, uh, you know, beautiful production design and I want to be able to, uh, control and tell the story the way I want to tell it. But when I want to make something feel out of control, then I feel like I have to give up those toys. Like one of them, one of the ones that, um, and again, like I couldn't be a bigger fan of George Romero, but he made one found footage movie and it was called Diary of the Dead. And I felt like in a lot of instances, he wanted the things that a filmmaker gets when they're making a movie, not the things that accidentally show up when I'm here with a camera and everything is going to shit. And, um, you know, like he wanted cross-cutting coverage. So he gave two people different, two cameras. But, you know, the framing feels... It, it feels like regular movie framing. It doesn't feel like I'm running from zombies and I sort of pointed the camera roughly back to where I thought it should be. Um, and, you know, my hat's off to Romero for even doing the experiment. And again, like, I could not be a bigger fan of George Romero's. Um, but that's an example of, in my opinion, when found footage doesn't, doesn't, doesn't stick to the discipline that it sets out to have. Well, that to me is still why the Blair Witch Project works, uh, and not to keep blowing smoke up everybody's ass, um, but why it works so much is because of the way it is filmed. It's not only that you don't see anything, it's that you can't see anything. You're completely yeah. helpless, uh, and you're completely bound by the point of the view of like Heather and Josh, who are mostly holding the camera, and you're like... I'm along for this ride at this point. I'm going to just have to go where you're taking me. And you can really, it really helps you buy in. It's getting a little bit late. I know I have to be up in about six hours. So I did oh, want to end. No, no, no. This has been great. Trust me. This is, this is what we look. This is why we do it. Um, yeah, most definitely. So I wanted to end by talking a little bit about the video palace. Uh, Cause I love that podcast. And I think that oh, thank you. what, what shows like that and the first season of the black tapes um what it allows you to what it was allowing creators to do is like very similar to what i think blair witch project and other films like it did where you can like suspend that disbelief a little bit especially i think in the video how did you come about with this idea for this like um collection of lost vhs tapes and this Uh, unfinding mystery uh, part of part of the VHS tape uh, thing, lore actually. Uh, that so that predates my involvement. That was uh, Mike Manello and Nick Brachia uh, had come up with the idea and pitched it to Shutter. And part of it was that uh, Shutter had a TV show called The Core that was a uh, like a talk Mickey show kind Keating, of thing. Right? Sorry, what? That was Mickey Keating, right? I believe so. Yeah, yeah, I uh, think Mickey hosted that. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end, uh, Sam Zimmerman would come out and give him um, a, a videotape to watch, and they were all white tapes. They were all white VHS tapes. 
And, uh, you know, Sam Zimmerman is the main curator over at Shudder. And, um, and so they were kind of building on the idea that there were these, that those tapes were real. Um, uh, all of us share um, a fascination with something that Mike and Nick kind of coined as uh, media horror. Uh, and, you know, media horror would be things like The Ring or Videodrome. Um, and, and, you know, there are ideas about like consuming certain media makes you consume more of it and it becomes kind of an obsession and it changes you somehow. It's a little bit akin, I'd say, to body horror in a way, but it's, it's less about like destroying it's, it's, it's more about kind of the, the mental breakdown. So, um, uh, when, when Mike and Nick, uh, you know, kind of first showed me that that was one of the ideas that was kind of already baked into the cake was uh, this idea of, of these white tapes that were kind of uh, not exactly cursed, but were kind of legendary. And as someone who grew up on VHS, uh, you know, like I immediately got it. You know, there, there are these kind of lurid, weird VHS tapes that always intrigued me when I'd see them at video stores or whatever, but I was always afraid to watch them. Um, you know, things like uh, Adam Green brings it up in, in the interview that we do with him, but you know, stuff like faces of death. Um, I mean, that, that's <laughs> a primo example of that kind of thing. Um, but we, you know, we love the idea that it would kind of be, it, that it was more than just a videotape, that it was, you know, sort of a, uh, an invitation or a portal somehow it kind of opened up something in your brain that kind of led you into, uh, possibly other dimension kind of place. Um, and, uh, we, I, I have literally no news to, to break, but like in the event that we're ever able to do a second season, like, like the mythology for video palace is like, so barely touched upon in the first season. There's so much more to go into, that I hope we get to do a second season because I feel like there's a lot to explore uh, that we haven't even gotten to yet. Yeah. Uh, it would literally take Shutter to order it because <laughs> we all want to do it very badly. Um, yeah. Yeah. We can't. Yeah. It, uh, Shutter owns the whole property. So uh, we can't really do anything without them. Um, you know, uh, I hope we get to, I hope we get an opportunity to do it. Um, you know, in the meantime, Bob uh, DeRosa and I, who, who co-wrote it together, uh, we are uh, developing a, another horror idea at Audible. Uh, which I probably can't say more than that at the moment because it hasn't been, it hasn't been greenlit, but like, you know, they had us write a pilot script in a series Bible. And then uh, we are going to the next level past that, which is they're ordering a script. But um, uh, it's not at all like video palace though. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I love, I love video palace. And, you know, for years before we did that, Mike Manello and I had been talking about just ourselves for fun, making a horror podcast um, that would be very much in the style that we made Video Palace in. That would be sort of like a first-person, real podcast. Like the thing you're listening to is the thing. It's it's serial or in the dark or you know any any other number of uh, podcasts where you're listening to the person who's presenting it to you. 
uh, you know, and they're kind of talking in your ear because there's something about the podcast format that I find irresistible. I'm, I subscribe to over a hundred podcasts. I'm, I'm obsessed with podcasts and, um, and I've been way into them since whenever they first showed up in the, uh, in iTunes, it was like 2006 or 2008 or whatever. I immediately, it was one of the things I gravitated towards. And I feel like podcasts are a little bit like novels and, uh, you know, in that it's very intimate. Like we don't sit around and read a novel to each other. We read it by ourselves. And the same way, like we listen to podcasts when we're, you know, in the car by ourselves or we're at the gym or, you know, for me, like a lot of times it was when I was walking the dog and, you know, I'm by myself and it's actually a perfect place to get, uh, super creeped out. I listen to, I mean, like a lot of the podcasts that I listen to and love are, uh, you know, true crime kind of stuff. Anyway, a lot of them are serial killer podcasts, which maybe makes me a little bit more like Chris, Chris Carrasco than I wish I was. But, um, you know, but I do listen to a lot of those things. And I remember specifically, I remember I was listening to a, a serial killer podcast called Happy Face. That is an amazing podcast. If you haven't heard it, can't recommend it highly enough. But there was one scene in it where they're describing one of the murders. And I was at Target, like picking up a toy for my son. And I like physically felt ill when it, when when this one murder was described to me. And, you know, like if I'd seen it in a movie, I don't think it would have affected me the same way. Um, because I'm building it in my head, you know, sort of like what you were saying about Blair Witch and, and, uh, you know, we had, you know, even at Shudder, we had had conversations about possibly turning some aspect of Video Palace into a TV series or a movie or this or that. And there was always a sense of like, how do we show something like the eyeless man without it just looking like a dude in a monster suit? Like it can't be that it's got to like, we've created somebody who's not really entirely seated in our dimension. So how do you show that? And there's a way, uh, but it, but it's, it's, uh, it's all very, uh, like it, it's a lot of fun to play in the audio realm because you really can, by depriving people of every sense, except for audio, you're making them fill in a lot of you're they're, they're filling in a lot of stuff. And that doesn't mean that you get to be lazy. I think it's, it's the same kind of work. I mean, like, the script for Video Palace is, you know, for the whole season is 183 pages long. And uh, we're able to record it very quickly. Um, but that was because, unlike a movie, you don't have to worry about cameras and lenses and makeup and hair and props and costumes and lights and, you know, sets. Uh, so you can move very, very quickly. But the scene work that we did is the same scene work you would do for a movie or a TV show or a play, frankly. Well, it's a much more democratic platform as well it's pretty much oh, yeah. anybody with a microphone and a computer i mean jerry and i are just two jamokes that are like recording <laughs> these episodes here and it just allows us to have a little platform where anybody can find us fairly quickly if they want to um and to your but, point like but if you're going to do a oh, i'm sorry, sorry no no you first well, if you're going to do a fiction podcast, mm -hmm. um, whether it was like what we did or whether it was, you know, like a, like an old school radio play style or, or anything in between, um, it really wouldn't cost that much. Like we recorded in a professional recording studio, but we had actually toyed with the idea of like, what if we just rent an office that's kind of quiet? And we say like, okay, well, all the bedroom scenes are going to be in this room and all the, you know, all of these scenes are going to be in this room. And when we record in a car, we're just going to go downstairs and get in a car and, and, and physically do it. And it would have slowed us down, 
we, we wouldn't have been able to make it as quickly because uh, we recorded everything in about five days. But, um, but you don't need to have pro- professional level stuff. I mean, I have another a separate podcast where I interview cinematographers called uh, Imaginatively the Cinematography Podcast. And uh, the microphone I'm recording myself on right now is the same one that I, you know, Russell Carpenter spoke into, the DP from Titanic. Um, and uh, it's not an expensive microphone, and you can get these things in sound effects libraries. And as you know, you know, Audacity or Audition or GarageBand or any of, any of those uh, softwares that you can, you can do that. I mean, like, yeah, you can go so far as to learn Pro Tools and, and add all the bells and whistles, um, or, you know, you can, you could do something that's not as expensive, but figure out a way to get there. And you could probably make a pretty fucking amazing, uh, fiction podcast. However you want it again, whatever format you chose, you could do it and it wouldn't cost very much. Uh, you know, like the things that cost us a lot of money were things like, you know, dealing with the screen actors guild and spending a lot of money on, uh, on the recording studio and, and, you know, like because somebody else was handling post-production and not me, like, you know, they had a staff, but given all that, the budget on video palace was very low, like much, much lower than making the lowest budget movie ever, you know? Absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more. And like you said, it's something where turning out the lights, lying in the dark, throwing on, an episode at a time and taking that 30 minute deep dive into it. Like it gives you so much to just creep yourself out. And I think that's why we love horror movies. Like at the end of the day, like I'm a 44 year old dude with a wife and a kid, like not being able to pay my mortgage is much scarier than something I'm going to see on a movie screen. Like that's my escape. Yeah. But when you're lying in the dark and th- those lights are out and those headphones are in, you know, then and you get to let your imagination wander a little bit. And I don't think there's anything better than that. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, that, that is I mean, that's why I was I've been um, attracted to this to this uh, form. And to a degree, like we were Mike and I were excited and and Bob and Nick and all of us, Liam uh, Finn, who produced it. I think we were all interested to see could we could we pull it off because none of us had that wasn't on our resume. Like you know, I didn't go to audio school. I went to film school, and um, you know, and the way we recorded stuff, like the way the way I the way I worked with the actors is the same way I would in in, in it's the same way I would work in a film environment or a theater environment. So like I kind of insisted, like like one of the people that that we were working with had suggested we bring everybody in and put them in isolation booths so they can slide their dialogue around, and that's how you would do like an animated, um, you know, an animated feature or whatever, you know, uh, you, you know, you bring in Gilbert Gottfried, you know, he goes through all his lines, he ad libs a bunch and then you pat him on the ass and send him on his way. And the way that, uh, the way that I kind of insisted we do it was anyone who's in a scene is in the same room with each other, unless they're supposed to be over the phone, like Sam Zimmerman, uh, it was not physically in the room with us, but also you're hearing him on a phone line. Same with Steve Barton. But like Adam Green was in the same room, but all the actors doing scene work together were in the same room. And if they're walking, they're walking in place because it was a small room. If they're if they're, uh, you know, if Mark and Tamara are lying in bed having a conversation, we put ferny pads on the floor and they and they laid down and talked and and, and did their scene laying down uh, when Shane Mueller when Shane Mueller's chasing uh, um, Mark Cambria to his car. They're really running all the way across the room. And, um, 
and and it was it was a very pure kind of a scene work thing, but it's like it doesn't cost anything to do it. I mean, you know, it, it, they're not handling like we didn't have to bring in props or anything. We didn't we didn't make it complicated. We in a way made it easier for ourselves because like we're, we know we're going to be going in and adding sound effects and ambience in later. The performances have to support that. So you know, if Chase is supposed to be you know Chase Williamson who who plays Mark Camber, if he's supposed to be lifting a heavy thing. Give them a heavy thing to make them lift it. Like, you know, how hard is that? It doesn't, it's not expensive. It's not time consuming. Just like go out of your way to create the, as much of the world as you would need to, to create the, those vocal performances. And then, you know, then the sound effects person, which was a guy named Jeremy Lee at Diablo Sound, he had, he had a lot to work with. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's all you know theater of the mind kind of stuff. Like, how do you how do you create that that real space? How do you create the reals? You know, and in in an, in an alternate universe or maybe on another project, I might do the plan of let's just rent an office and not even mess with having a professional sound house. Like, if we weren't in such a hurry to, to crank it out because we really didn't have any time, um it might make more sense to be like, yeah, let's record all the car scenes in a real car. I mean, we don't have to be driving, but we can sit in a car. It'll sound like we're recording it in a car. If we record it in a car, uh, as opposed to asking somebody later to EQ it. So it sounds like it's in a car and put reverb and stuff like it's in a car. Um, Well, and, and I, I listen to a lot of fiction podcasts, and I feel like a lot of them don't get that. There's, I don't want to name names because I don't want to trash anybody, but there's uh, one fiction podcast in particular that, was, that, that got a lot of play, that a lot of people loved. And, um, and I found it frustrating because it was obvious to me that they did the thing that we wouldn't do. <laughs> they brought the actors in and just had them go through all their lines and then leave. So they don't feel like they're in the room with each other. They're not reacting to each other in real time. Whereas uh, one that I will name is Homecoming, which Gimlet made and, uh, and it got made into a TV show with Julie Roberts. But the podcast, which starred um, um, Catherine Keener and Oscar Isaac, like I, I wouldn't bet the farm that I'm right about this, but I'm pretty sure that all the actors who are in a scene together are really in the room acting off of, off of one another. It feels intimate and real. And like you're in the room with real people having a conversation. It doesn't feel presentational at all. And, uh, and to me, that's kind of the high watermark of that kind of craft. And it's, it, it, and it, and it doesn't cost more to do it. I, I just think that like every art form, uh, podcasting is, um, is evolving into different things. You know, if you look back on like what made YouTube YouTube in 2005 when it was launched and, you know, and then five years later and then five years after that, like it's become more sophisticated and become more of its own thing and less like, you know, America's funniest home videos or, you know, amateurs attempting to make television series. Like now it's just kind of its own thing. Like who would have ever thought of vlogging would, would be a thing or, or unboxing videos. Like that would never happen on television. That would never happen in movies. But on on this format, it's the most you know, it's the most exciting thing for whoever it is that loves that. Um, not not me, but somebody. Videos of this woman who repairs squishy toys. 
Like yeah. she cannot get enough of those. And I'm like, I look at those and I'm like, this is so ridiculous. And then, then I realize this woman is probably making more this month than I'm going to make all year. And then oh, I get sure. very sad. I get very, very well, sad. Don't, don't be sad. But, uh, but, but realize that sort of the, well, the economics of it are a, sep- are a separate thing. But think of the phenomenology that brings about, uh, you know, uh, garbage truck videos, which uh, a friend of mine with a kid who's a little bit older than my son was like, yeah, get ready for the garbage truck videos. And I went on YouTube and there, there are millions of views on, on like, of, like some dude holding his, you know, smartphone and filming a garbage truck driving down the street. And I'm like, how, how, why? But like that, that stuff is a real contender for eyeballs and people really want it. But, but I, I think that podcasts do the same thing though. Like, uh, when I first started listening to podcasts, I was listening to a lot of stuff from slate and it was their executive producer, Andy Bowers, literally just reading slate articles. And I was like, eh, it's like reading an article, except I didn't have to read. What do you know? I'm walking a dog and I'm reading an article, getting smart. And then slowly it became a different thing where, you know, it became more like a radio talk show kind of a thing. And then, of course, Serial blew it up. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there's, there are strengths and uh, aspects that are so specific to podcasting that you just don't find in any other form. And it's partly because it's just audio, but it's not just because it's just audio or, you know, the Orson Welles War of the Worlds. We'd be doing only the high-tech version of that, or we'd be doing only the high-tech version of, uh, not even high-tech, we'd just be doing a slightly different version of, you know, Terry Gross on NPR interviewing people. But like, what is it that we're, what is it that we're doing? You know, like a a show like yours, um, you know, there are a lot of those. I listened to a bunch of them. Um, you know, there, there are things like, I mean, like I would say that, uh, Adam Green and Joe Lynch's, uh, show, the movie crypt is not unlike yours. You know, it's a similar, similar kind of a format, but also, you know, uh, you know, basically any topic you want to, that you're excited about, I'm, I'm into science and skepticism and there's, you know, a whole universe of great skeptical podcasts like the skeptics guide to the universe. And I, and those people have gotten big enough that they got their own book deal that like at least one of them quit his day job and full-time just makes that show. And, uh, you know, I, I, it's, it's heartening to me to, to kind of see that, or, you know, a show like lore, which seem is, it's one of those things where you're like, God damn it. I wish I would have thought of that, but I didn't. And that guy does it perfectly. You know, I mean, my favorite podcast right now, there's a show called The Lapsed Fan and they do like seven hour deep dives into old wrestling pay-per-views or the history of pro (laughs) wrestling. And they're pulling in like crazy amounts of money on Patreon every month at this point because they'll do because they'll spend like 20 episodes talking about like world class championship wrestling in the Von Erics for like four months. You have this basically bible at that point and it's just it's incredible and who would think there'd be a market for that but here we are yeah well, one, of, Jerry... one of my uh, one of my podcast laments of the last year was there was one that uh that my friend scott weinberg was doing with uh drew mcweeney mm-hmm. called the 80s all over and you can listen oh to yeah stars. i love i nothing on earth bummed me out more than finding out that they weren't going to finish it because like I would be like, what's some rando fucking movie from 1983 that I've forgotten about. And I would look it up and I'd be like, Oh, I wonder if they covered it. And then of course they had, you know, it's like, I would have to look at what month it came out and then they would go into a deep dive on it. And, uh, 
And I mean, like to me, that was such a great idea. My wife and I had the idea and maybe one day we'll do it or, or not. But we were, it was similar to that. It was before 80s all over was even on. But we had the idea of like going through and watching every movie that ever won the Oscar. Like go start at the very, very beginning and watch every Academy Award winner and kind of do it, you know, because even if you go back 10 years, they start to feel very retrograde, <laughs> you know, like... Oh, sorry, I just dropped my phone and it made a big loud clunk. Sorry about yeah, that. what bummed me out, because that was what I would call like a pad and paper podcast where you would, when you're listening to it, have a little notepad next to you and jot down these movie titles. They would talk about it like, I'm going to yeah. go back and find these. And it was, yeah, it is sad. They just didn't have enough funding to kind of, because that was just such a massive undertaking. Yeah, it's, it's a humongous undertaking. But I mean, like, but there are so many... There's so many podcasts, like uh, one that I always go back to is Glenn Washington, the guy who does Snap Judgment, did a podcast called Heaven's Gate about the Heaven's Gate suicide cult. And when I first when I first heard about it, I was like, you know, like I find that stuff really interesting. But Glenn Washington, if you've ever listened to Snap Judgment, you realize like he's just a very deep, thoughtful uh, I don't I don't know him, but he seems like a very he seems like a very empathetic person. And when I heard that he'd done Heaven's Gate, I was like, why? You know, because Heaven's Gate is like a, this ridiculous thing where these, you know, these people cut off their testicles and ate phenylbarbital laced ice cream and murdered themselves so they could get on the comet Hale-Bopp. Uh, and, you know, it's like it's all just a just an idiotic story. I, I mean, like a very entertaining, sensationalistic one. And then I listened to it and Glenn Washington, by the time it was over, it's like you understand where these people were coming from. And it created like a weird sense of empathy for these people. And, and my my whole point of view on them shifted from one of, I would say scorn and mockishness to one of like, um, like, you know, I, I feel terrible for you that you felt like this is how you could fulfill yourself. But those people that felt very fulfilled by what they did, like, who am I to say that? I mean, I can say that I don't believe there was a UFO behind the comet Hale-Bopp that they all got on after they committed suicide. But who am I to say that, that they weren't living out their dream by doing this thing that sounds, you know, rip shit bonkers to me. Or what it takes to get to a place in your life in order to get, to where you think that's like a really good choice. Well, Jerry, do you have anything you want to add before we sign out for the night? No, I think we covered it all. It's been, I think, amazing. I'm, I'm really stoked on this one. I am too. This is an episode in and of itself. This is no bonus. Ben, thank you so much for being generous with your time tonight. Um, This has been an absolute blast. I'm not just talking about, you know, just the supplemental material and the making of the Blair Witch, but I just think the just in general, yeah, conversation we're having just about this is fascinating in and of itself. Where can where can our listeners find you? online we don't want to send people to your door but where can people like find you (laughs) they can find me in starbucks in sherman oaks california and i'm lone i'm lonely and they should say hello um no uh uh my website uh is benrockonline.com i've never been able to get benrock.com because it was owned by a boating company when the internet started so Benrock online. And when you go there, you'll be able to find my Twitter and, and all that other stuff. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter at Neptune salad. I'm on, uh, I'm on fucking LinkedIn for God's sakes. I don't know why, but I would just start with Benrock online. You can see my real, see, see the stuff I'm working on. Um, and certainly find my, my social medias there. Mm-hmm. 
Well, again, thank you so much, and congrats on the birth of your son. And enjoy <laughs> these, you know, enjoy the. It's going to be a wild ride when you get to the terrible twos. Um, I feel like we were already there. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he still was. He's sixteen months old, but I feel like he's two already. Yeah. Oh, just just wait until he's seventeen. My daughter turns eighteen in March. That's been a ride. Oh dear lord! Right. No, I have when I was a substitute teacher, too. it was all high school. So I, I. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I've I've always been like, oh, kids are great. I don't know about teenagers. Was addicted to trouble. Was addicted to pain. So thank you once again to our very special guest, Ben Rock, for joining us. That was an absolute blast having him on earlier this week. Jerry and I were both really thrilled to get to talk to him. And dear listeners, thanks for putting up. I had a bit of a head cold that day when recording. Uh, we recorded pretty late. I think I tapped out a little bit after midnight. So um, I maybe didn't sound quite as up as normal because I was just stuffed to the gills with cold medicine. So here's what we have going on between now and then. Later this week, uh, Jerry and I are going to be speaking with Eduardo Sanchez, the co-director of the Blair Witch Project, talking about his own personal history of uh, bringing his vision you know, from concept to screen and the aftermath that followed. Really excited to talk to Eduardo. We're going to be doing our Book of Shadows episode as well, and then finishing our coverage of the Blair Witch series with 2016's The Blair Witch, uh, the film written by Simon Barrett and directed by Adam Wingard. It was actually to date their last collaboration together after working on films like uh, A Horrible Way to Die, um, You're Next, and of course The Guest. So hopefully we'll see more from them in the future. I think they work incredibly well together. Thank you for listening. We hope you guys enjoyed this episode. A little bit different from a normal episode for us, but like I said, we really love this series, and we're only doing more. We like the music in the background from my good friend Yoni Gordon off his upcoming album. Nice and cool. I think it fits what we do pretty well. You can find us over on Twitter at Pod and Pendulum. Go ahead and leave us some comments. We appreciate all the feedback you guys have given us. Ask us your questions on the Blair Witch Project, and we will do our best to answer them on the show. You can follow us individually over on Twitter at Jerry is just okay, and I am at Mike underscore Snoonian. And as always, if you guys can take a minute of your time, head over to iTunes or I guess Apple Podcasts now. Leave our show a review. Um, that goes a long way to helping people find us. I can tell you we've gotten enough reviews now. We're actually getting onto some of their lists. And also, like, if you like this show, you may also like things. And that really helps us out. It helps new people find us, which is the reason why we do this, is we want people to kind of discover us and hopefully they enjoy what we do. But so far, you guys have just been tremendous in your feedback. We can't say enough good stuff. Once we wrap up our Blair Witch series, we're moving right on to Halloween. Um, not just the season, but also the series. All 11 movies, plus a lot of bonus goodies that we have lined up. Um, that is Jerry's favorite movie of all time. It's one of my favorite franchises of all time. We're both really giddy to bring this to you. So we hope you guys love what we have in store. 
once again, we will be looking forward to talking to you and bringing more of our show to you later on. Till then, we are out.